This is Sportsnet Today with Logan Gordon and Julian McKenzie on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Hour one went so well, they decided to bring us back for another one. It's Logan and Julian along with you. Sportsnet Today, live from the Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studios. For Doug Lacey's Basement Systems, Cracked Foundation, Boeing Foundation Walls, they have a simple permanent solution to stabilize your foundation. Contact Basement Systems or all things basement-y. Visit dlbasementsystems.com. Hour one in the books, the latest on the Calgary Flames. Nick Simone and Adam Ruzichka claimed on waivers. Perhaps opening a spot for a return to the NHL for Oliver Shillington against the Columbus Blue Jackets Thursday night at the Scotiabank Saddle Dome. And a look at the opposition with Aaron Portsline of The Athletic who covers uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets. All of that in a packed hour one. If you missed any of it, check us out on the podcast if you don't mind. Google, Amazon, Spotify, your favorite podcatcher. We don't judge. Come along for the ride. We'd love to have you along. Uh, Cam and Shannon are outstanding producers on this Thursday. 960-960 is the fan feedback line. Shoot us a text. We'd love to chat. Whatever's on your mind, let us know. Hit us up, 960-960. But we're kicking off Hour 2 in style, going down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline, welcoming our Thursday regular, the man, the myth, the legend, from MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast, it's the one, the only, Adnan Verk. AV, happy Thursday, pal. How are you? Logo, always with the incredible introductions. I appreciate you, my friend. Always good to catch up with you and Julian. Everything is good here in our world. A little uh, Baseball Hall of Fame talks. So I got a little baseball today. And, uh, yeah, still buzzing after the Oscar nomination. So, plenty to get into. Yeah, we got a ton to, uh, to dive into. I did want to start. Uh, with those uh, Hall of Fame announcements, it's going to be Adrian Beltre, Joe Maurer, and Todd Helton uh, elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame on Tuesday after receiving at least 75% of votes from the Baseball Writers Association of America. Beltre and Maurer were first time on the ballot. Helton was in his sixth year of eligibility, and Maurer just slid in there by four votes. Uh, your thoughts on this uh, latest class of Hall of Famers, Adnan? Yeah, congrats to all three great guys and certainly deserving of being Hall of Famers. We start with Beltre, who is an absolute no-doubter. I mean, phenomenal player for a long time and was a guy who I don't think necessarily was in a Hall of Fame path, but then you start to see his numbers, especially later in his career. He was so durable and so consistent, and third base has generally been an underrepresented position. So I'm really happy for him to get in as a first-ballot guy, high ratio getting in. I got to interview him last year at the World Series. Of course, it was in Texas, and... Uh, He's awesome, man. It was really nice to meet him and his son. Still in great shape, by the way. Belcher looks like he can still pick it, still lift. He's one of those guys, you know, 5% body fat, taking it seriously. That was a great leader for all those teams that he played for. Um, in terms of Helton, listen, six years, you said, to wait a little bit. But I think you look at the slash line. You know, anytime you're getting a 300 average, a 400 on base, a 500 slugging, you have my attention. There's always that talk around Coors Field that hurts him initially. But eventually you go, hey, man, as Ron Darling said to me, every Hall of Famer, it's better at home than he does on the road. That's a fact. Um, you know, however much Coorsfield may have helped him, as my colleague Dan O'Dowd has pointed out, Coorsfield can hurt you as well because of the fact it's hard to adjust at all. To the, it's hard in terms of oxygen and playing there. So it's not just, all oh, the ball flies there. Like There's upsides and downsides of playing there. Uh, as far as his offense is concerned, he was still a great hitter on the road. And so, again, you wait a few years, but he was certainly deserving of being in there. 
Now, Maurer is interesting because if you asked me a month ago, do you think Joe Maurer's a Hall of Famer? I probably would have said no, especially the first ballot guy. I probably would have said, you know what, I get him in events, but he feels like a 50 or 60. Like, he's a very good player, but I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer. To get in on a first ballot to me is always very notable. And I think what the voters did is they said, look at his numbers primarily as a catcher. And those batting titles, you know, those are meaningful in that era. And you have very few catchers who are that offensively successful as Joe Mauer. I guess my um, critique of him, at least initially in my head, would be once he got moved to first base, he didn't have the power that you'd expect of most first basemen at that position. So to me, I was always like, well, he was a great catcher, defensively and offensively. But as a first baseman, he was a good player, but not a great player because he didn't have the power numbers. But I think overall the voters said, hey, you know what? It's more important the peak of a player rather than consistency and longevity. When this guy was great, how great was he? And there's no denying Mauer, if you add him up as a catcher and those games he played, he's up there with the all-time greats. So good for him getting on the first ballot and also getting with Jim Leland. I mean, that's going to be four players being represented at Cooper Stanley's July. It's going to be a lot of fun, man. I don't think it's too early to look ahead to next year's class. Anyone in that group excite you? Guys like Ichiro Suzuki will be eligible. CeCe Sabathia won a World Series with the Yankees, eligible. King Felix Hernandez, another Seattle Mariner legend among those eligible next season. Yeah, Julian, I think, listen, Ichiro's a no-brainer. God, I mean, even if you just look at his Major League numbers, he's awesome. But to be the Hall of Fame, should look at where you are as a totality as a player. So if you look at what he did in Japan and Major League Baseball, He's a Hall of Famer. But again, if you just looked at Major League Baseball, the guy was like a 10-time gold glover. You know, 2001, rookie of the year, MVP. His first 10 years were awesome. Even when he slipped a little bit late in his career, he more than did enough for me to be a Hall of Famer. And Sabathia was incredible. I mean, maybe the win total not as high as some other players of different eras. But again, as an ace with Cleveland, what he did with Milwaukee, pitched them into the playoffs. The Yankees, he was awesome. Won a World Series. Like I think those two were absolute no-brainer first ballot. I think you could make a case for Felix. Again, I have to take a closer look myself. I, I, my initial thought is not a first ballot guy, but probably a Hall of Famer four or five years down the road. Um, and I think Billy Wagner is really interesting because he fell five votes short, and next year will be his 10th and final year on the ballot. So my, my gut reaction would be Ichiro, Sabathia, Billy Wagner for sure, and maybe King Felix as well. So at least three next year, which is nice. I mean, we, we've had Hall of Fame versus like one guy. Here's Fred McGriff, okay. So I think it's nice to get three or four guys. There's always an argument, small hall versus big hall. I, I just focus on the player. Like, I don't, I don't want the, the Hall of Fame to be diluted. But if someone believes that they should be in and is deserving of it, then, then I'm, I'm all for it. So uh, I agree with you. It'll be a fun class next year as well. At least three, and this year we're going to get four. And Julian brings up an interesting point, especially with those starting pitchers. Um, since the writers haven't elected a pitcher since 2019, Adnan, when Halliday, Mucina, and Mariano uh, Rivera went in, um, is that, a, you think, a, a situation where because starters' workloads are going down more and more, it's going to be harder for a starting pitcher that doesn't have, you know, like top-tier numbers for their entire career to maybe find their way into the Hall of Fame going forward? Yeah, I think that could be part of it as well. I think that, you know, again, in the past, you would say 500 home runs, 3,000 hits, those are the numbers to get a hit or in. And then Gary Sheffield had 509 home runs, and he misses in his final year on the ballot. And I think he's hurt by alleged steroid allegations, the Balco connection. But you know, Sheffield, of course, vigorously denied those. Um, but I think that's what is happening. Now, for pitchers, you would have said 300 wins automatic, uh, 3,000 strikeouts, et cetera. But now nobody gets 300 wins, right? That's last Mohicans. That, that's never going to happen again. So that number has to go down to 250. 
And then all of a sudden, you'll get more pitchers in the mix there, like Sabathian and others of that elk and Verlander and Scherzer. Like, those guys are going to Hall of Fame. They're not going to win 300 games. So I do think for pitchers, you have to kind of use different qualifications. And that's where war becomes something more interesting. And you still have the traditional sets, of course. You're going to look at a guy's ERA and his strikeouts and the innings. But you will look at different measures because the, the wins have just been so devalued over time. And the pitchers don't pitch nearly as much as they used to, the starters specifically. Uh, also, I always like this part of uh, the baseball side of things, at least, you know, going through the different years for everybody, Adnan, and as you kind of look at, you know, guys that have been on there for a long time and start to do the numbers and wonder if guys are ever going to get in, uh, you know, for a guy like Abreu who's been on there for five years, you know, halfway to that 10-year limit, Andy Pettit's been on there for six, and you start to look at some of those numbers and wonder if you don't take a big jump, like a guy like Carlos Beltran did, he made it to 57%, I believe, on this latest one. That's a 10% jump. Like, if you don't see a significant rise at least halfway through, it feels like your chances of getting in just kind of get slow, lower and lower as the years go by. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Logan. You need to see incremental improvement. You know, I was looking at Wagner numbers specifically. I think he started at, let's say, 10 or 11%, and then it was like 12%, 15%. But then there's a jump. Then it goes from like 18 to 30. You know, okay, now we're talking. Then 30 becomes 45. And you go, okay, okay you've you got to have that big momentum. Because if you start out slow, which a lot of guys do, that's fine. But at some point, perception has to shift. Somebody has to make a case for you that this player is a Hall of Famer. Because it used to be 15 years, don't forget. Now it's 10 years. So it, sometimes it takes guys longer than others. You know, our, our, the great Larry Walker, of course, didn't get in right away. It took a while, a little bit of pushing and prodding. There is a veterans committee that can help certain guys get in. But, yeah, I'm with you. You, you can't just say, well, I'm at 30. We'll get to 35, 40, 45. It doesn't work that way. And there's sometimes guys slide back to the way. A-Rod lost 1% of the way, right? So it's, um, you got to hope for a big jump at some point, and then you kind of make your move. AV, we're going to move on to the National Football League. Championship Sunday is upon us. The Chiefs and the Ravens on one side of the bracket, the Lions and the 49ers on the other side. But I do want to go back to at least one of the matchups that occurred last weekend. We got we got to pour one out for the Buffalo Bills, man. Yeah, you got, I got to say, man, the fact that it, it's everything was supposed to go right for those guys. I'm not even a Bills fan. I felt I feel sick for these people after what they endured last week. What did you think of that game? No, I'm with you, Julian. I tried to watch as much as I could and was pretty successful on the Sunday watching that Bills game. It was um, it was heartbreaking, man. I, I, as I said to you guys last week, of all those games, it's the one that I'm going to be most important to be keyed on is that one. And, of course, Ravens-Texans was a blowout. That wasn't particularly surprising. Um, you know, as far as the Packers, they gave the Niners a game. So that was probably more than I think most expected. And the Lions and Bucks, I mean, it was still a one-possession game late in that game. And ultimately, Tampa Bay ran out of gas. But I think we all knew Bill's Chiefs is going to be special, and it was, and in all facets. And just if I may put on my TV hat, I'm going to say, man, Nance and Romo are just fantastic to listen to. God, you know, I don't know if you guys are the type like to get together with people and watch games. I never do because I'm such a sports broadcasting nerd and fan of the genre. I just like to literally listen to the broadcasters, whether it's my team or not. I, I don't want anyone there aside from, you know, immediate family. And I was telling my son, who's taking a sports broadcasting course in high school, I said, listen, how good these guys are. And especially that final drive on the second down when Allen missed him in the end zone. He goes, okay. And Romo said with prescience, because if they, if they lose this game, that's the play that's going to cost them. Because you can see Allen's going for the home run. He said he had the receiver open, the crossing right. He went for it. He missed him. Then on third down, Allen went to the right side of the field, and you see receivers open on the left side of the field. The next play, 
of course, Bass misses the field goal, and it's heartbreak once again for Buffalo. And Nance nails the call wide right, the two most dreaded words in Buffalo sports history. It was, I got to tell you, man, just as a fan of broadcasting, I thought those guys did an incredible job. Uh, obviously, the television angles and the technology, all of it was awesome to watch. This is a, as a football fan, it's cold, and just to be able to sit back and watch the game, it was marvelous. But you're right, man. My heart goes out to the Bills fans. I'm not a Bills fan either, as you know. But being from Toronto, Southern Ontario, I have a lot of Bills fans that I, I support. I, I Honestly, my heart went out to them. Like, people who are not sports fans don't get it, right? They laugh at like, Why do you think this so seriously? But it, it's gut-wrenching. Like, it's it's a painful loss. And this was their best chance to do it. And I also think that the, the digs drop on that deep ball. For like, Allen throws that ball seven years. It's incredible, man. It's like John Elway, how far he can throw it, how strong he can throw it. And to miss on a deep pass like that, that hurt them. And I think that's what's, what's, what's most tough to swallow. If you lose the game... And Kansas City is clearly better. You accept it. But Buffalo is at home. They were the better team. They should have won that game. And they were not able to capitalize. And the Chiefs take advantage. And the other part of it, of course, is the Chiefs and how great Mahomes is. Like, it, it's a marvel to watch, man. Like, again, I don't have a dog in the race. I wouldn't say I like Mahomes. I wouldn't say I hate Mahomes. I just like watching great players. And he's an all-time great player. He was just so effective. And, of course, Kelsey stepping up. And my man, Jason Kelsey, enjoying himself with Taylor Swift. So it was, <laughs> it was great theater. But I'm with you, man. I, I, I definitely feel for the Bills. And I just hope we get two great games on Sunday, which I think we will. Again, Sports TV had. I said, this is such a good, compelling matchup. I said, Chiefs, you've got the biggest star in the sport. Mahomes will always draw. Ravens, Lamar Jackson's one of the most popular players in the sport. That's a win. So two great quarterbacks going head-to-head. It's always good. San Francisco is a model organization, you know, one of the top five, probably most popular teams. you got so many people in their 40s who are fans of that Montana, Rice, Steve Young era. So San Francisco always draws. And then you got the Lions, which if you don't have a dog in the race, how are you not pulling for Detroit? They've never won a Super Bowl. Michigan wins the national championship. Dan Campbell, as my friend Stugat says, eats meat and kneecaps. Those are his two <laughs> right now. And he's, and he's got the Lions in the NFC championship game. I'm like, I... Every matchup to me is a win. Every single matchup is a win. Whoever wins, we're all going to be winners. I think it's going to be such a compelling Super Bowl. Adnan, since you uh, revealed yourself to be a nerd and appreciator of sports broadcasting, I very much am of that same school of thought. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Give me your Mount Rushmore of play-by-play broadcasters. So like your top four, they could cover any sport. Doesn't matter if they're North American-based, European-based. French, English, doesn't matter. They're your top four play-by-play broadcasters, the Mount Rushmore. Current or all-time? Yeah, it does get hard. All-time. All-time? No, I, I like it. It, 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 yeah, it does get hard because I have friends in the business, so I, I do get partial to that. But let me just start with, I'm not friends with as much as I love him, Joe Buck. So Joe Buck's my number one guy. I always loved Joe Buck ever since he called the first World Series in 96. This guy's awesome. Never had the pleasure of meeting him. Mutual friends. There's, there's definitely been a, a, a tweet exchange with me and Joe, but... Uh, I think he's phenomenal. I think he's uh, baseball's my favorite sport. I, he called 24 world series to me. He's the voice of the sport for so many years. And in football, he's fantastic. Excellent chemistry with Aikman. I think he's got a great voice. I think he rises to the occasion when necessary, but he's also minimalist. I think he's smart. I think he's funny. I'll never forget. McCarver was with him, obviously. And he kept calling him Bronson Arroyo rather than Brandon McCarver did. And the first time Joe Buck gently corrected him, the second time corrected him. The third time he said, Joe Buck says, this is during a World Series game. I fell off my couch. He said, did you go to school with the Bronson Arroyo? It was so funny. <laughs> he mocked the cover. <laughs> I, I was crying of laughter. It was so funny. So, And people have told me, by the way, John Crocs in front of me goes, dude, Joe Buck is hysterical. If you sat at dinner with him, you'd be laughing the whole time. So I love Joe. 
And then I have to, of course, support friends. So Adam Amin's my dear friend from ESPN. He is the, uh, the voice of the Chicago Bulls. He's the number three Fox guy right now, which is amazing to think about. God, he's 36 years old because they go Burkhart, number one, Joe Davis, two. Adam's number three. He's Mark Slareth. He's my buddy. He's awesome. He's so great on football, basketball. Baseball is a, a passionist. He grew up a Cubs fan. He's done wrestling, lacrosse. He's amazing. And he's really been a guy that's kind of come up. Like, once he went to Fox, like, okay, everyone's going to know who this guy is. Now you know who Adam Amin is. Mm-hmm. Now it gets very tricky. So I'll go Sean McDonough, who's also a friend, and we'll, we'll go with a bit of a homer pick because, of course, he called the Jays World Series. Syracuse alum as well, so I, I like that pick. Syracuse alum. He's awesome. And I've never, you know, college football wasn't something I grew up with, but I still listen just for McDonough. Again, I, I texted him after the national, uh, the semifinals, excuse me, and I said, dude, like, you're A-plus, Sean. Like, he is, and he's very gracious, by the way. He's very kind to young broadcasters. He's so appreciative of the praise. He's never dismissive. He's very, very kind. So, again, my... My bias as a friend, because he's such a good dude, comes in. But I'm telling you, just to listen to Sean McDonough, great voice, funny, smart, cutting wit. Uh, you know, his voice is mellifluous, right? When McDonough called it, I'm a player right there. Like his, his voice, like it's such a crescendo to listen to. Like, again, I couldn't tell us about Washington, Texas, but I was listening just to listen to McDonough, how good he called the game, and he was awesome. So those are three. Uh, let's go Dan Shulman, of course, my buddy. Yeah. Voice of the Jays. I, I grew up listening to Dan on the radio, of course, in the Sam 590. And then college Jays games, and I got to work with them at ESPN. I think Showman does everything well. Again, baseball, he's outstanding, but he's really good in college basketball. I've never heard him call football. I'm sure he could do it. That's pretty good. I go Showman, McDonough, Joe Buck, Adam Amin. I'm also missing the platform, but a friend, John Shambi, great boog. It calls the World Series at ESPN on, on uh, ESPN Radio. He's the voice of the Chicago Cubs. I'm definitely going to get in trouble missing people. But, but Joe, those are the ones. I know you mean, Julian. You're thinking of like the big ones. Hey, Al Michaels is great. Not as crazy as he once was, but still great. We all grew up on Bob Cole, of course. Mike Emmerich, I always enjoyed. Like, once you name three, you need like 10. But those are generally a few of my favorites. I'll say this. Like, it doesn't even have to be the big favorites. Like, I just started putting together my Mount Rushmore here. And, and I think at least one texter on our text line here at 960-960 started putting in their top five. I feel for these things, yeah. you could just put whoever you want. Like, my four... Chris Cuthbert, who still does a great job at Sportsnet, grew up listening to him on CBC calling NHL games. Cuthbert's unbelievable. Uh, Kevin yeah. Harlan does a great job calling games on right. ba- for basketball in the NFL, too. Yeah. Uh, Gary Thorne, a uh, longtime ESPN yeah. hockey guy, great guy. And I know this guy's your very... So far, I'm most, on yeah, your list so far, I'm most supportive of, gay, of Gary Thorne. When I can I understand ESPN, that. They said that they used to... Yeah, they used to call him Game 7 Gary. He had such great energy on the hockey. I thought he was. I remember working at TSN, I had to cut the highlight when the Stars won, and his call was amazing. Remember the skate in the crease? He yelled, deep in the heart of Texas, the Stars, stars are, are shining. shining. It was yes. a great call by Gary Thorne. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. The, the, the last guy is very polarizing. I'm on the side where I love this guy. Oh, no. Gus Johnson. Oh, no. I think he's one of the oh, best to Gus do it. I love Gus Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, God. I mean, of your list, if I had to rank them, I would. I would. I mean, I try to. I mean, they're all awesome, but I. I would personally have an affinity for Gus specifically and uh, and Gary Thorne. Those two are awesome. Gus, I got to meet a few years ago, by the way, and I told him what a huge fan I was. It was like a college football seminar. I was still at ESPN, and he was awesome. Like he, I was so thrilled that he knew who I was. He was like, "No, oh, man, you're great." Because I was listening to you and Gal and Jess. You're good. Because you dress good. You look good. You know your stuff. And I, and I started laughing. I said, "You know, Gus, you were always so good." Because remember, he came on the score. One time with Glenn Sheeler, my old buddy, back in the square, because we were like doing a like a March Madness profile, and like Gus was as big as the tournament. Like you know that, right? Like you you go into these tournaments and like you wouldn't know the players. Everyone knows Gus Johnson. Like he was 
it was always a shame that he wasn't calling the national championship as good as Jim Nance was, of course, Raptor. But I'm like, like think of another play-by-play guy that was identified with the entire event. Like that happens, right? With Buck and baseball, Michaels and football. But like, if you thought of March Madness of a certain era, it was literally because John. Yes, it was literally him. So good. And I'm with you. And I'm with you. He's polarizing. There are definitely people I have met who are like, no, nah, he's too loud. No way. I'm with you. I, I think Gus, he still calls an occasional next game. So I actually listen to Gus. Maybe a couple weeks ago, I was listening to him call a game. I'm with you on Gus. He's the awesome. Only names that I would add because you've, you've both done a great job covering so many of them. I'd have to give shout outs. I'd have to do my list, but I'm just going to add to your guys's. Doc Emmerich. Yeah. Great. Has Legend. to be on my sure. list. Uh, I'm a big Tarico fan. I like Mike Tarico. I think Mike Tarico could yep. could call Very a smart. guy painting a wall, and I'd probably be interested in it. To add to that, too, I yeah. think Mike Tarico is the best play by play guy who knows the rules. Mike Tarico will call a game, and yeah. he will be like, "Yeah, it's at that point, but this should have happened. This looked like there was a hole that he reads the rule book like nobody's I, business, I really, and he does such a brilliant no, job I really of identifying love the rule." Tirico. You guys are in this. I can confirm this because again, I know I know Mike from ESPN, awesome guy. And I asked him about that one time because I said, "How do you know this?" Was because I read it. Like, and he showed me. He's like, he highlights like every rule. His his memory is incredible. Like, he probably has a photographic memory, which mm-hmm. is why he's so good in the Olympics and stuff. And mm-hmm. to kind of Logan's point, like he calls everything. Like he told me a couple of years ago, he was going to call hockey for NBC, and he was so pumped. You know, he grew up in Michigan, so. I think he has an affinity for the Red Wings. And, like, he was pretty good. Like, hockey's a tough sport to call if you've never done it. Completely different cadence from football, what he does normally. But he's probably the most – like, he's one of those, like, most talented broadcasters. Like, can host at the elite level, can do play-by-play at an elite level. And you guys are right. On the rules, he's unbelievable. He knows it right away. My last two names I'll just throw in there before I go back to Julian. Uh, I'm, I've always loved Vin Scully. Vin will always have a place in my heart yeah. because it's just – there's no one quite like – Vin Scully, and he doesn't have maybe the, the the same cachet as others we've mentioned who have gone sport to sport. But back when Vin started, you didn't do hockey and baseball and basketball. You just did whatever sport you did. And for him to have the longevity that he had was, was unbelievable. Still one of the names that I always think of when I think of great broadcasters. And last but not least, Vern Lundquist. Vern would probably make Vern would probably be on my mouth. Your list is really good. Those are really good names. Yeah. Wow. Vern Lundquist. I mean, you're right. I just I'm picturing the CBS Blazer and Vern Lundquist. He is fantastic. I mean, you know what? If you want to go that era, then I love Dick Stockton. He was always great as well. Dick Stockton, so good. Those are like, yeah, just like smooth voices, smooth deliveries. Vern on college hoops is awesome. Dick Stockton, NFL. It's I think the best way to do it is to kind of go sport by sport like you were doing. So that way if you go, okay, hockey, it's one of, you know, Doc, Cuthbert, et cetera, and then you go through each sport. But it's it's um, that's a good list, man. I like the fact we went young and old. There's yeah. definitely people listening right now who have no idea who Berlin is. No, Doc, definitely right? not. They're legends. <laughs> I don't know about yeah. the I'll, I'll, before I before I switch to another topic here that we want to get to before you let you go here. If you don't know who Vern Lundquist is, but you're a big sports fan, yeah. you probably remember. I mean, maybe you have to be of a certain age, but Tiger Woods at the Masters, I want to say in 05, yeah. that shot on 16. That's my favorite Vern Lundquist call of anything. And is also the greatest ad yeah. for Nike, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. I'm picturing the red, the, the tiger red right now. <laughs> yeah, you see it. You know what? I think for Lundquist had the call when uh, when George Mason won. And, the, and the, when they went to the Final yes. Four, I believe he said, bye, George, they've done it. it yeah, sure did. Yeah, that was Vern. He's, fun to listen to he's also in yeah, Happy Gilmore, cool. by the way, as, oh, as really? the, 
He was the, the golf commentator for Happy Gilmore. That's Vern Lundquist. He's, oh, there might only be one shot of him actually, but he's just calling because he calls all the ridiculous things that that Happy does, and then getting in the fight with. Um, um, Oh, I'm gonna lose it right now. With Not shooter. No, he's fighting with the the prices right. Bob Barker, Bob Barker, Bob Barker. Bob Barker. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Barker. sorry. Barker. And Vern Lundquist is calling like the play by play of it and all. It's like this is unbelievable. <laughs> like what a what an unbelievable. Um, and as this texter says, he's calls Happy Gilmore's gold jacket victory. Like there's a great call there. Okay. Yeah. You're um, right, man. He's uh, whenever they make those cameos in movies, it's amazing as well. That's funny. Go ahead. Uh, last thing, uh, we got to get to uh, Oscar talk. The nominations are out for all the different awards and all that. One topic I want to get to you and get your thoughts on. A lot of people seem to be upset about how Barbie didn't get its just due, specifically in uh, two awards. Well, for for best actress for Mar- Margot Robbie. Uh, and Greta Gerwig for for Best Director. That being said, Ryan Gosling, nominated for Best Actor. He was incredible in the movie. And uh, America Ferreira, who was really good in that movie as well. Criminally underrated, considering how so much hype went to some of the other castmates. That, that's at least my opinion. Where do you stand on on the hype for the movie for the movie Barbie and, and some of the discussion that's gone around the nominations it got? Yeah, I, I think it's the biggest headline. Julian, people come out and go, hey, what, what happened with Barbie? Why did it perform better? And I'll say this. I liked the movie. I didn't love it. At no point watching it did I say to myself, that movie should and will win Academy Awards. You know, when I saw it back in July with the whole Barbenheimer hype, if you'd said to me, what gets nominated? I would have said, okay, maybe Margot Robbie for actress. Maybe you want to give it a Best Picture nomination because there's 10 nominees, production design, music, you know, that kind of stuff, sure. So I never said to myself, this movie should be winning all these awards. So having said that, I don't think it should be up for Best Director. I like the fact that the other nominees are more worthy, particularly the ones like, you know what's getting nominated. The three that are no-brainers are Nolan, Scorsese, and Lanthimos for Poor Things. What they did was they included more foreign films. The Zone of Interest, Jonathan Glazer's up for Best Director, and Justine Trier is up for Anatomy of a Fall, which was my number 10 film of the year. It's a courtroom drama. Uh, it's an excellent film. So if you're asking me, I'm like, yeah, I would rather nominate Trier ahead of Gerwig because I thought Anatomy of a Fall was better than Barbie. But I get it. If you're a Barbie fan, I would never deny it was a cultural phenomenon. It did great box office. It brought people back to movies. It was a passionate fan base. So I get it. My pushback would be she's still nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, Greta Gerwig specifically, and I think she's a good chance of winning that. And by losing out on a director nomination, that might help her win. You know, that famously helped Affleck. Remember, he did not get nominated for Best Director, but everyone was so upset or ended up winning Best Picture, which was an upset at the time. So I actually think Gerwig might end up getting an Oscar for Screenplay, so that's ruled moot. I'm with you on the Margot Robbie. I think if the movie's called Barbie and you think it's great, how does the actress not playing Barbie not get nominated? So I, would, I, I agree more with that one. Although I looked at the nominees and I, I liked most of them. You know, Annette Benning for Nye, maybe the weakest of the five, wasn't a great movie. She's a great actress, obviously. Bugsy, one of my all-time favorites. So I probably would have put Robbie ahead of Benning. But again, Margot Robbie's one of the producers of Barbie. So Barbie getting nominated for Best Picture, Margot Robbie still gets a nomination. The things that I was most aggrieved about, as always, Scorsese gets nominated for Best Director, as he should, and sets a record. Most nominations for a director, ahead of living director, excuse me, ahead of Steven Spielberg. Amazing. But he missed out on adapted screenplay. It doesn't make sense, Verk. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Like, how is Barbie an adapted screenplay? Barbie, is to me, an adapted screenplay, fellas, is based on a novel, on a play, on an article, on whatever it may be. Yeah. Barbie's based on, like, a toy. Like, like, like Killers of the Flower Moon. Scorsese and Eric Roth, who won an Oscar, by the way, for Forrest Gump, has been nominated for Munich and other films, The Insider. 
They take a book called The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. They write this script. DiCaprio says, hey, I like it. Let's change it, though. I don't want to play Ernest. Oh, okay. I don't want to play the FBI agent. They rewrite the entire script, and the movie got 10 nominations. So if it's nominated for Best Picture, Director, Supporting Actor, De Niro's first nomination in 12 years, Lily Gladstone, first ever Native American nominated for an acting Oscar, but the script doesn't get nominated? And they said part of the reason is why is because they moved Barbie from original screenplay to adapted. It's completely nonsensical. And I also would fight back against Leo not getting nominated. Again, if the movie gets 10 nominations, I would think the guy who's up for best actor is a key part of the process. It was a loaded category, and again, I will focus on the positive, which is that Paul Giamatti gets his first-ever Best Actor nomination. I'm hoping, like hell, he can win for the holdovers. I'm glad that movie's up for Best Picture and he was recognized, so we'll see. But, but you're right, Julian. The number one thing people walking out of there is saying, hey, what about more for Barbie? But I'll be honest, I, I was okay with it. I, I didn't think it should be nominated for Best Picture or Best Director, quite frankly. Uh, we've gone long, as we always do, Burke. Uh, appreciate these chats, as always, my man. Enjoy some football this weekend. Uh, we'll chat with you again next week, pal. All right. One guy we left out is Bob Costas, who name dropped. I'm going to have yeah. to with Bob next week. I've been, wow. I've friends with Bob because we're MLB Network, no, MLB Network colleagues, and he loves old movies, so he knows what a big movie guy I am. He says to me, can you sit up at dinner with Ben Mankiewicz? Ben Mankiewicz, of course, I don't know if you guys have a channel in Canada, but he's the host of TCM, Turner Classic Movies. So Mank and I are buddies for the movie thing. So next Thursday, me, Costas, and Mankiewicz. Next week, I'm going to have stories of sitting with arguably the greatest sports broadcaster of all time. And if I don't mention Bob, of course, him calling baseball those other sports, I would be very aggrieved. So uh, next week, stories from Costas right here on 960. Oh, we need that. We need that. Looking forward to it a lot. Uh, Always appreciate the chats, A.V. Take care, pal. All right. Thanks, Logan. Thanks, Julian. Take care, boys. Whoa, Nelly. (laughs) There we go. Adnan Ferk, MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. Uh, If you want more on the movies and Oscar nominations, uh, if you're a movie nerd like myself, check out the latest edition uh, of the Cinephile Podcast wherever you get your podcast. We got to take a break. We got to get back on track here. When we come back, we'll continue to get you set for the Flames and the Columbus Blue Jackets. It's a game day here on Sportsnet 9. Flames and Blue Jackets Thursday night from the Scotiabank Saddledome as the Flames look to snap a three-game losing streak against a Blue Jackets team, Julian, that hasn't had a regulation win since December 19th against the Buffalo Sabres. Big game for the Flames. Nine games on this Thursday. Flames and Jackets, of course, one of those nine Five o'clock, can I interest you in the Flyers and the Red Wings on Sportsnet? Pretty good. How about Patrick Waugh returning to Montreal? I'm very intrigued at that. I was looking at um, a tweet from my colleague Peter Baugh at The Athletic, who's in Montreal for the game. Uh, they have Patrick Waugh in like their big press conference room. ton of co- cameras in there. Can't imagine why that would be. No history there whatsoever. None. Uh, Bruins Senators at five o'clock. The Coyotes, who claimed Adam Ruzichka off waivers from the Flames today, are in Tampa Bay to take on the Lightning. The Devils, who claimed Nick DeSimone off of waivers from the Calgary Flames, are in Carolina to take on the Hurricanes. you got the Ducks and the Stars, Predators and Wild. Flames fans watching that one closely on the out-of-town scoreboard. And then later tonight, another 7 o'clock start, this one on Sportsnet 1. It's the Blackhawks and the Oilers, so if you want to take a peek, at uh, the Flames' next opponent on Saturday night, it's the Chicago Blackhawks and the Edmonton Oilers. Of course, Chicago still without Connor Bedard, not expecting him 
to be in the lineup when Chicago rolls through town on Saturday. That's too bad. It would have been really nice to uh, to get a peek at the first overall pick, but got to understand why Chicago is being pretty careful with that. Yeah, I mean, look, fractured jaw. I mean, I don't know how long Connor Bedard was drinking stuff out of a straw to get through the <laughs> the, the process of that pain. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely the uh, I'm disappointed for especially for me, like last year when he was still in junior, he had that big game with the Pats where he scored that really sick was a shootout goal, right? Yep. That six shootout goal. Everyone at the at the dome is going crazy. I think that was like the largest crowd he had played in front of in junior hockey at that point. Like that was a big time. I missed that. I went home and I was looking forward to to being in the building for Bedard, that game, I'll still be in the building. I may actually uh, go there in the stands. I don't know if I should be broadcasting that for people, but yeah, I'm, I'm just, I, I like to have that like at least once a year. I don't know how you feel about it, but like, you know, obviously watching from the press box is fun, but I, I do like that opportunity to, you know, just be among people and just like watch it. My sister's going to be in town, so that'll be fun. Um, so yeah, I'll get to do that, but obviously that matchup would mean so much more. Uh, if Connor Bedard was part of it. Also, I, I imagine it's a loss for Sportsnet too because they've only had, I think there was only like a small number of games on national television here that were supposed to feature Connor Bedard and this game would have been one of them. And I have to imagine for after hours, Connor Bedard, I think that would have been the ideal time to have him as a guest on that show, on that segment. And it's looking like they're not going to get him. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, the Blackhawks... Their season is what it is. They're at the bottom of the standings with the San Jose Sharks. But for uh, other teams, and sometimes when you're the opposition, it's fun to have you know those storylines and a, a great first overall pick like Connor Bedard would have been a, a nice storyline heading into Saturday. But for now, we can just focus maybe more on the opponent for the Calgary Flames and just how big these next two games are, Julian. We kind of started mm. the show today in hour one talking about the news of the day and the waiver claims and... Um, the perception that it looks like Oliver Shillington's going to be back into it. We only got into it a little bit, but these two games are so important for the Calgary Flames. And I said this earlier in the week, and I think it still applies today. You need four points out of this if you're the Calgary Flames, but given the inconsistencies of this group, I don't know that you can feel like you're guaranteed those four points. You've lost to Columbus this season. You've lost to Chicago this season. Chicago gave you a tough loss at the end of last year as well. So while the Flames need the points way more than their opponent, there's still no guarantees because this is what inconsistent teams do. They show up some nights and they don't show up other nights. And I think that's been a characteristic of this Flames group that was just on a four-game winning streak and has almost gone entirely backwards, Julian, whereas a loss Thursday night would be four wins followed by four losses. That's kind of the mark of an inconsistent group in my mind. And I think because of those four wins, which they didn't do a lot of last year, I think they had only done it once I can't once think, late in the once season. Once late in the season, they were still technically alive that at that point. That ended by the, in the Chicago loss. Jeez. They <laughs> had a four-game winning streak, and, and it, it was ended in that Chicago loss. What's crazy about that end of the year, too, is that four-game winning streak, they needed that streak 
But just for me, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, I didn't feel that all the fans were all the way in. And then that Chicago game happens and they lose that game. And it feels like a confirmation for so many fans who were not followers, were not believers of last year's team. For this to happen now, where you built up four games in a row, where you win, and then you lose to Edmonton, you lose to Toronto, you can see the frustration. You lose to St. Louis. And just over the last few games after these games, you're seeing Mackenzie Weger looking frustrated and wondering, well, why didn't guys show up at these key moments? Blake Coleman just letting everyone know again, he's tired of losing and, and wondering, like, like they, you know, they take two steps forward, but they end up taking two steps back. Like, if they don't win these games to end off uh, their time before the break, I think this is going to end up being more important than just, you know, not being in a playoff position. This could have the potential to break the spirit of a team. I, I, I that's at least my vantage point. I think if you go through, you 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 finally get to a point where it looks as if you're getting out of that inconsistency, and you undo all of that work. Something that this team has done pretty much since the beginning of last year, like that has to hurt for this locker room. It absolutely does. And then after the after the break, you're going to Boston. And then you have games in uh, New York with the Islanders, the Devils. I think it's the Devils and the Islanders. But you end that trip with the New York Rangers. Those are some, I mean, the Islanders are where they're at. I mean, actually, no, like all of them are. No, I don't. Where are the Islanders in the uh, in the standings here? They where are they are? are? There we go. They're two points out of a wild card spot. They need the points. Yep. But Boston is top of the Eastern Conference. Rangers, top of the Metropolitan yeah, Division. You go Boston, New Jersey, New, Islanders, Rangers. New Jersey, right where the Islanders are, where they're fighting for points. Oh, and you get to say hello to Tyler Toffoli again. Um, yeah, you're going off a really... You're, that's a tough four-game stretch for this team. The month of February is tough, really. Man. I mean, you think about it, you get Winnipeg. You've got Boston home and away. Another battle of Alberta. The Kings are mixed in there. Detroit's fighting in a similar spot, I believe, to New York. They actually hold that wild card spot in the East. Uh, you've got San Jose on the schedule, but past that, and like we just talked about, the way the Flames play down to their opponents sometimes, even San Jose on that schedule, I'm not going to sit there and say, well, that's a gimme two points because they haven't proven that that's a gimme two points. No. Right? And you, you, I like what you said from Blake Coleman there, and I even go back to... Tuesday night when we were talking to Mackenzie Weger after the loss yep. and he said and this is what struck me the most because we've heard this at different times from this Flames group. I'm going to paraphrase but you'll know what I'm talking about. Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. He says we're all going to say it's going to be a new day. We're going to bounce back. We're going to do all these right things. I'm sure that's what everyone's going to say. Yeah. But we have to actually go out and do it. That's what Mackenzie said. Is everyone here and if you're a Flames fan, we play the audio all the time here on Sportsnet today. You hear from the players and the coaches. I've said this for a long time. This group, Julian, knows what to say. They're never far away from putting the blame on me instead of we. They say what they need to do. They say the right things all the time. It's very rare that a Flames player speaks out in a way that makes you raise your eyebrow and like I don't I don't know if that's you know how the room feels about it or if that's how people perceive this team. And but it's been like that for a while. But the follow-up to those words, as Mackenzie Weger said on Tuesday, isn't always there with this group. They say a lot of the right things, 
But if you go out and lose to Columbus or you lose to Chicago, it's just another example that this team does know what to say, but they don't know how to follow that up. This team, comparing from last year to this year, I know that players did everything they could to try to distance themselves from last year, but I'm sorry, I don't think they've done that great of a job. Last year, they got all those new players, and for a good chunk of the year, they got the benefit of the doubt until maybe halfway through the year and then when they eventually get eliminated from playoff contention because the way the roster was built, you'd think, hey, if they get into the playoffs, they could do something. They could still get some wins, but they lost a lot of games to teams that were below them in the standings, including Chicago, and that helped diminish that benefit of the doubt. This year, they lost that benefit of the doubt really early. I think with with me, I think with this team, just the benefit of the, benefit of the doubt I wavered a lot, and then I think that Chicago loss at the beginning of the month kind of really changed my view. But I think there were a lot of fans within the first few games who just figured, you know what? Like, this team just doesn't have it. And this team just doesn't have what it takes to get to the playoffs. And this team, when they, if they're going to go on a run, it's more than just putting themselves in the playoffs. It's all about changing reputation at this point. Because I think a lot of people are looking at this roster now and are going with the assumption that they're not good enough, that they're not talented enough. They could say all the right things that they want to say, but this team might not be good enough to execute them. And that's why you have the people saying that they want to retool, they want to rebuild. You know, I I, I don't blame them for going out that way. And the more that you see them fighting with 500 rather than fighting for that wild card spot, Julian, the more I agree with the retool sentiment. Yeah. And the, the more I look at it and say, yeah, I just, is I don't want to diminish that making the playoffs isn't a, a an accomplishment because it is, but I still think making the playoffs and being a contender are two different things. Absolutely. Right? Like just because you, you made the playoffs doesn't mean that you have and yes, you can you can spell look at the St. Louis Blues were last in the NHL and the LA Kings were once an eight seed that that upset and, and went to a Stanley Cup victory. I I guess, but I, I still look at those teams and say I, I can at least squint and see how they are were underperforming contenders at, at some point. This team that's fighting with five hundred and has an opportunity like they do with some of these UFAs to to reset or bring in some assets. I mean, I think you have to weigh those two almost equally if you're Craig Conroy and say, you know, what 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 impacts me more as a franchise, right? What's is is getting into an eight spot more valuable to me, or is getting into uh, a world where I, I sell off some assets and retool for uh, a year or two, and then try to, you know, hope that in a year or two from now I'm in as a a top three team in the Pacific, say, yeah. Right? I mean, I think that's what they're fighting with right now. You look at a team like Florida that came in as a as a second wild card spot. They're second in the in the Atlantic Division right now. This is a team that is playing to its potential. That one Keith Kachuk interview on Toronto Radio where he called out the team for being <laughs> soft, that team has transformed since that phone uh call interview and Florida looks like a legit team. Not to, you know, damage a couple people here who are you know maybe still sour over how things ended with Matthew Kachuk but he's on a team that is much closer to a contender than the Calgary Flames are right now 
Uh, just putting a wrap on the show today. Just want to pass this along. Mike Russo from The Athletic, who covers the Minnesota Wild, uh, announcing that he believes the Minnesota Wild have acquired Penguins defenseman Will Butcher. Wow. Uh, says he's likely going to start in Iowa, but will give Minnesota uh, some depth going forward. So that's just coming down from Mike Russo of The Athletic. Um, keep your eyes on Pittsburgh uh, as they continue to fall away from a wild card spot. What does Kyle Dubas do? with uh, some of the names in Pittsburgh as Eric Carlson, their big move in the offseason has not paid off. And they are now five points behind Detroit for that wild card spot in the East. So that's just coming down from uh, Mike Russo of the athletic. As we finish up the show today, quick reminder, Sportsnet 960 beer league broadcast takes uh, place March 22nd flames community arenas. Uh, and we need two teams to join us on the ice and have their game broadcast over the Sportsnet 960 airwaves. If you're lucky enough to take part in this epic evening, we're going to have celebrity refs, an after party at Wild Rose Brewery. We're going to have intermission games for audience members and custom jerseys for both teams. Enter your team now at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Two winning teams will be chosen and contacted on February 2nd. This brought to you by our friends at Wild Rose Brewery, serving a premium craft beer to Albertans since 1996. Whether you're looking for a finely tuned craft lager or robust porter, they got something for everyone. Find them around Alberta and at their tap room in the Curry Barracks. Julian, great stuff as always. Appreciate you being along for the ride, my man. Always uh, a great time when we get to kick it, my man. I'm, 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 I was happy I was able to make it for today, and I'm excited for tomorrow. Me too. Uh, I will be away on Friday, so Julian's going to ride solo, so you're in good hands. Uh, J-Mac, I will see you at the Saddle Dome later tonight, sir. Yes, sir. Ski. Uh, take it easy. Thank you to Julian. Thank you to Aaron Portsline and Adnan Verk, who joined the show today. Uh, thank you to Cam and Shan for their great work as our outstanding producers. And thank you for listening, whether live or on the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Um, and make sure if you uh, want to check us on the podcast, Google, Amazon, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher, we'd love to have you along for the ride here on Sportsnet today. We're going to hand things over to Real Kipper and Bourne. Steinberg's got Flames talk for you at 4. Flames warm up at 6 o'clock, getting you set for the Flames and the Columbus Blue Jackets. We're looking forward to uh, perhaps the return of Oliver Shillington to the Flames lineup tonight at the Scotiabank Saddle Dome. Derek Wills and Megan Mickelson will have the call for you right here on your home of the Flames. This is Sportsnet 960, The Fan.